Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. How many science fiction lovers are in the crowd today? You like science fiction, yeah? Movies or books? Well, I, uh, I am not. I have a brother who is a great science fiction connoisseur, and I have only read one science fiction book in my life. Actually, I've read two, but one of them, I guess, was such poor quality, my brother got mad at me for reading that kind of stuff. He said it was such lousy, trashy science fiction, he got angry, and if, if I talked about that one, he might get angry again. So I don't think about that one, but I think about another one that was supposedly worthwhile. It was made into a movie, it's a classic, I guess, of science fiction called When Worlds Collide, and it's just about that, about worlds that, bam, smash into each other. Unfortunately, one of them happens to be ours. When Worlds Collide, that's about all that I've read in that, uh, in that category, but Colliding worlds, that is what is happening to me these days as I read through God's world. My worlds are colliding. Two very different things are happening to me as I read through God's word. At the same time that I'm being drawn to this little sentences, broken phrases, just parts of sentences that are just dense, they're just stuffed, they're just packed with meaning and power. I'm, I'm being drawn to those little phrases in Scripture. I've shared some of those with you over the last few weeks. At the same time I'm being drawn to those little teeny tiny phrases, I've made the discovery that when God has something to say to people, He doesn't usually write it. He speaks it. And what that probably means for us is that we should listen to what he's been saying. When we are together, we should probably read longer passages together than we normally do because that's the way God communicates. He speaks his word. And so we should probably be speaking out his word in longer passages than we normally do. So today we're going to take a look at a longer passage, but we're also going to look at a tiny little phrase as well. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, and we're going to look at a longer passage that's going to speak to several different groups of people. It's going to speak to Jesus' critics. It's going to speak to some guests at a dinner party. It's going to speak to the host of the dinner party, and then it's going to speak to everybody. Now, while you're turning there, Luke 14, let me just set the stage for you. Jesus is returning our attention to the familiar meal scene. He's back at dinner again. A lot of what Jesus had to do happened around the table. And so this is the familiar meal scene again, and it's one of the several Sabbath squabbles that Jesus will get into. Sabbath keeping was a very big deal. Keeping the seventh day holy before the Lord was a very big deal to the people that Jesus was around in his day. And for them, it was a very restrictive day. There were more can'ts than cans when it came to keeping the Sabbath. And it seems like Jesus never passed up an opportunity to pick a fight by violating the Sabbath, at least violating it in somebody's opinion. 
Now, at the stop top of the story that we're going to look at in Luke 14, we're going to find the religious list makers. We call them the Pharisees. These are the people who made lists of how you were supposed to live. There's nothing wrong with making a list, I suppose, if the list is for yourself. But don't ask me to live by your list. They did. And so the religious list makers are there, and they've got an eye on Jesus. So the battle lines are drawn early. Verse 1, chapter 14 of Luke, it happened that when he, Jesus, went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now, we don't use that term much anymore. Let me explain what the man was suffering from. His body was retaining fluids. He was swollen. He was distended all over his body, likely. And these fluids that could not exit, they were causing extreme, excruciating pain that could not be relieved. Now, people in that day saw this as a condition, this condition as a sign of God's anger. It was a sign of God's judgment on a life if you got this condition because this was a pain that could not be lifted. You couldn't make it go away. There was no cure. And this pain was reserved, they said, for people who had offended God greatly. And so the critics are watching as Jesus deals with this marked man. And there in front of him was a man suffering from jopsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers these are lawyers, people that are experts in the Moses law. Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, the list makers, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, he asked this question not because he's playing stump the chump, although he does stump them. And he stumps them because... There is no law, there is no regulations that covers what he's about to do. And they kept silent. They had nothing to say. And he took hold of him. What it means is he took the afflicted man by the hand. He took the man by the hand, this man who was afflicted, this man who was to their way of thinking under God's judgments. And these critics are very angry now that Christ dares to take him by the hand he took hold of him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well, which would be a tragedy of the first order, and will not immediately, immediately drop what he's doing and pull him out even on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Well, this part of the story is directed at Jesus' critics. But now with verse 7, we pivot and he begins to direct his attention to the guests that are at this dinner party where he has healed this man. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, like something like this, don't take the place of honor. 
For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And when he brings this up, he's giving a lie to the notion that uh, people are assuming when they walk into the room, I am the most important guest here. And so he tells them, when you're invited, don't take that place of honor because somebody more distinguished than you may have been invited. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man and then in disgrace you will proceed to occupy the last place. And when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, there it is. He's addressing the guest, but he moves on now, and he speaks directly to the host, to the man who threw the party. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. He's implying there that there will be a greater payment. And he goes on to describe it. But when you give a reception, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Well, we're going to continue this little saga, but that's enough for now. Jesus has healed this man, this swollen, pain-wracked man, in doing so, he has angered the professional list makers. He goes on then and talks to the guests, a little lesson on humility, and to the host, a little lesson on who you should invite. Well, as I said, two very different things are colliding for me right now. I'm convinced that longer passages, and we're going to read more to make this even longer, I'm convinced that longer passages are needed. And at the same time, it's the sentence fragments, it's the, it's the little crumbs of a passage that are making me stop and look as I go through God's Word. Well, there we had the longer passage. Now let me tell you about the little short phrase that I noticed. I found it in the book of Ephesians this week where Paul says, find out what pleases the Lord. Make it your business to find out what pleases the Lord. And he carries with it the idea you should always, we should always be trying to find out what pleases the Lord. Several years ago, I became friends with a man who has an incredibly great marriage, a marriage that anybody would envy. And several of us were with him one day, and when somebody asked him, what's the secret? And he said, no secret. He said, about the first year of marriage, I found out what pleased my wife, what made her happy, and I do those things. Find out what pleases the Lord and do those things. Find out what pleases the Lord. We should be always trying to find out what pleases the Lord. I, I think that what pleases the Lord are some of the things that take place in the supper scene that we're reading about. I think a greater passion pleases the Lord. Verse numbers 1 through 6, his very pointed remarks to his critics. He's talking about a greater passion 
that they need to have. They have a passion about something, but he says you need to have a greater passion than the one you have. And those are very pointed remarks to his critics. They're so pointed that they had to take a big gulp and shut their mouths. The things he said were so difficult to hear. Look at verse 5. That's where he makes his defense. He said to them, which one of you, after he's healed the man, and they're staring at him in silence, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out, even on a Sabbath day? That's his defense, and his defense for why he's healed that man is really a rebuke, isn't it? Because you would do the same thing in my place, even for a dumb ox. It's his defense there that brings them up short. You know, it's easy, relatively easy, to get an American churchgoer to talk about her church, his church. What great programs we have. What a wonderful facility we've been blessed with. How wonderful it is the way things worked out that we have this. It's miraculous almost. And in my church, there are the best kind of people and an outstanding pastor and a great worship team, and I'm so glad to be a part of it. It's just the best. It's easy to find people to do that. It's fairly easy to find Christians that will tell you Christianity is far superior to anything else, to Islam or Buddhism or, or anything else. It's better. What they're involved in now is better than some other denomination or group that they used to belong to. Though all of those things may contain a kernel of truth, we aren't supposed to be passionate about those things. Religion is not what we're supposed to be passionate about at all. These critics were passionate about their religion, weren't they? And when they sensed that somebody was violating it, their passion rises to the surface. How we do our religion was very important to them. Hours at a time, they could talk about their religion, about the ritual and the history and the rules and the beautiful temple and everything that they did that was part of their religion. They could talk by the hour about that. It's just the best. They're passionate about their religion, but we have a, a greater passion. Jesus defended His action in healing on the Sabbath with the common sense plea about a prized animal or a loved son. And we have a Savior that has literally reached down into the pit and He has drugged me out of that pit. He has pulled me away from the worst kind of danger. The Bible says we are all of us like brands that are plucked from the burning fire. He's rescued us. And there are broken people and there are hurting people all around us that are still in that awful pit, you see. Our church, our denomination, our programs, those are not the things that we should be passionate about. But We should be passionate that we serve a Savior who rescues the lost, you see. He talks about a greater preoccupation here, too. He talks about a, a greater preoccupation that pleases the Lord when he pivots and begins to address himself to the dinner guests. He begins to talk about being preoccupied with something besides yourself. You know, even Christians 
can be navel gazers, right? Concerned about the things that concern me most of all. Self can be a favorite preoccupation for any of us. We, we can all act as if the world revolves around me and my desires and my feelings. And so it's easy to imagine a guy doing what Jesus said this guy did. He enters the banquet hall and he sizes things up and he notices where the best seats were and he helps himself to one of the best seats in the house. Well, that's all based on the false assumption that he was the most deserving and maybe the most important guest in that room that day. You see, the problem starts when we assume that we are due honors that we have not earned. How easy it is to assume honor for myself that others don't think I've earned. We talk about a thing called humility. Humility comes from a word, humus, that means dirt of the earth. What are we made of? We're made of dirt. We're made of common old dirt until the Lord breathed life into us. We're just dirt. The Lord knows what we're made of. We're common. None of us is more special than the next. That's what humility is. It's not to make yourself lower than you are or grovel or be a doormat, but it's to recognize who you really are and not to assume honors for myself that I don't deserve. It's not a case of less than not a case of more than. We need to learn to let credit go to somebody else. I learned a long time ago you can get an awful lot done when you don't care who gets the credit. We need to drop the preoccupation with self. There is a greater preoccupation that we should have that pleases the Lord. And then he talks about a greater reward that pleases the Lord. And that's when he turns his attention to the host, to the one who foot the bill for the dinner. When the preoccupation is with me, when the preoccupation is myself, most things I do in life then are for myself. In the 17th century, there was a great scientist, mathematician, Pascal. He was not only great in the field of science and mathematics, but he was an intense lover of he was crazy in love with Jesus Christ. It's fair to say that he lived his life drunk on the things of the Spirit. And they said about Pascal that he had a mind on fire for Christ. And this mind on fire for Christ one time said, every person, every man, every woman does that which they believe will make them happy. I think he's right about that. Now, the person who does what they think is making them happy may be wrong. The drug addict thinks as he's shooting up, this is going to make me feel better. This is going to solve my immediate problem. Not thinking about what it's going to be like when the bottom drops out. The drunk or the compulsive gambler, he engages in that behavior because he thinks it will give him a measure of satisfaction and happiness. But the same is true for the gossip whose tongue drips with acid as they rip somebody's reputation apart. Why are they doing that? They're not concerned about that person. They're concerned about how it will make them feel better. The bigot the same way, the greedy, the sexually careless, they do what they think will make them happy. Even the pervert who preys on the innocent is doing what he thinks will make him happy. 
happy. And in the extreme, the one who murders, who steals the life of another that he can never restore, is doing what he thinks will bring him some kind of happiness. Some of those things are extreme, of course. But did you know that if we're not careful, even the good things that we do can really be from a selfish motive just to make me happy? I'm doing something that appears to be good, but I'm doing it to make me look good, or I'm doing it to make me feel good about myself. I think that's what a lot of what we call giving back is all about, if we're honest. We can even apply that approach to worship. Why am I worshiping? Is it for me to make me feel good? Or is it for God? Why am I here worshiping? Nearly all Americans, they think that it's for them. The church and worship, it's all about me, and and I'll go if I feel like it, and if I need it. Not realizing it's not for them, it's for the audience of one who has been searching for centuries for those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's what it's for. That's why Scripture tells us that the good things, even the good things we do, should involve a level of true sacrifice, real inconvenience sometimes, and sometimes make, it would make me happier and it would make my life easier if I took a pass on the things that I do that are good. You see, there's a reason that even the highest and best worship is called a sacrifice of praise. When the self is the center, you see, even footing the bill for a lavish party, even that can be all about myself, though you fed 110 people on your dime. It's really about yourself. The guests are there, and they're gobbling up all my deviled eggs and those little barbecue weenies on toothpicks that I like so much, the ones that I paid for, but my friends are there just as props in my own self-worship. So the host gets this odd caution from Jesus. Don't invite people who can give you something back, who can return the invitation and have you at theirs. Don't invite people that have the ability to give you a hearty thank you, even, even, even express appreciation. Don't invite them that are like that, but invite who? The poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, people that are so broken that they can't give, they can only take. Invite them. You want to play a mind game? Imagine this, what would a sit-down meal at your place, I mean where you, you have several main dishes and, and you have all the sides and you've got some just killer desserts, you've got all the tableware and everything is set and decorated and it's perfect, or, or maybe a, a big barbecue at the house, what would all of that look like? If you went up and down Sumner, where the bums make the street their bed, or you went to the devastated parts of Union Avenue or Cottonwood, or you went to the nastiest of the nasty trailer parks and you invited those folks instead of your friends, think about that. 
What would that be like? The real point is, don't do something for what you get out of it. Don't do something for what it will get you. With your life, let your life be different, Jesus says. And don't think in terms of any kind of repayment. And this is the reason, you see. Here, here's the reason. This, this expectation is the reason that people burn out in doing good things. This is why there is a thing called ministry burnout. And every month, 4,000 pastors quit. This, this is why social workers change jobs. This is why teachers, good teachers, go into selling insurance. Because there's no positive feedback. There's no thanks. There's no sense of appreciation. It stops being personally rewarding enough. This is, this is hard stuff in our culture. But for the one who is trying to find out what pleases the Lord, it really boils down to trust do it expecting nothing in return. That's what Jesus says. And he says there will be a reward. Will there be a reward? Someday. Should I expect a reward? Is it wrong for me to expect a reward? No, go ahead and expect the reward. But when? Jesus says when your redemption is a done deal, that's when you're rewarded. When your body is as saved and as new as your soul. At the resurrection of the righteous, that's when, when the rewards really happen. But that's not now. And it's not next week. And it's probably not likely anytime soon. Could be a long way off before we get the reward. For all you know. That means it involves trusting God, doesn't it? I don't get anything now, but later. I told you it's hard. I told you a story before, but it's exactly what I'm talking about today. A couple who spent their lives, decades, serving the poor and the forgotten people somewhere in a forgotten village in deep Africa. They had served there for years and years and years and truthfully had had very little success. They'd done it on their own money, <clears throat> at their own expense. And now they were old and their bodies were broken, their health was gone, and there was no more to give, and so it was time to come back home, whatever home was. Because they had nothing in the States. But they boarded an ocean liner back home. And they could only pay for passage in what was called the steerage down way below the water line in the ugly places. As luck would have it, they were on the same boat that was taking then-President Theodore Roosevelt back home from a great safari where he had killed all kinds of prize animals and had trophies by the dozens. He wasn't staying in steerage. He was staying in the finest cabin that the luxury liner had. And he was the toast of the ship for the seven or eight days that it took them to get back to New York. 
And everybody wanted to talk to the president. And there were occasions and dinners in his honor and toasts and, and all kinds of recognition for him and what he'd done, the great hunter in Africa. But the couple that had given their life in quiet service got nothing. And it really ate at the man. It bothered him the whole time. And every time he would hear cheers going up for the great hunter president, there was bitterness in his spirit. And when they finally docked and, and there were brass bands and tens of thousands and ticker tape and, and confetti and, and, and testimonials and people to meet the great president, there was nobody to meet them. There was nowhere to go. There was no welcoming party. They checked themselves into the cheapest of the cheap hotels. Just had two rooms. And the man griped and complained. How unfair it had been that the president for killing some animals got all this attention and he got nothing. It really worked on him. Finally, after two or three days of that, his wife had had just about enough. She had to be on the receiving end of all this complaining, and she said, I'm sick of it. Your complaint isn't with me. Your complaint is with God. So why don't you leave me alone and go in that room and you argue with Him? And don't come out until it's settled. So he did. He went in and he poured out the bitterness in his spleen. He opened it and let it go. It was an eruption like he had never experienced before as he told God how unfair it was. And he cataloged all of the things and sacrifices that he had made, not for one or two years, but for decades. And he got nothing, nothing for it. And he compared himself to the president that was lauded by everybody. It just wasn't right. After two or three days of staying in that room, he finally came out. And his wife said, well, what happened? Did God speak to you? Yes. What did he say? He told me, I'm not home yet. We're not home yet. Whatever you do for Christ, the reward is post-dated. It'll be there, sure enough, when you go home, you see, when you go home. You know, there's a, there's a greater mercy that's talked about here, too, and that mercy is is the heart of the Lord. And that's how the whole story ends up. Verse 15, probably to break the tension in the room, a man makes a statement just to break the tension. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard all of this, his remarks to the critics and the guests and the hosts, the business about rewards waiting, he, the man said to him, Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus told one of his most masterful fictional stories from that. What that man said reminded him of another dinner scene again. And as this story unfolds, beginning at verse 16 down through 24, it will be a summary of everything Jesus has been doing in the last several chapters of Dr. Luke's gospel. Listen. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner. And he invited many, and at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. What kind of person buys property and doesn't examine it? Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen. That's a lot. That means this guy is a high roller because that's three to five times the, the normal number of oxen that a person would have. That meant he had three to five times the amount of land. This guy is a heavy hitter. He said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Who buys a car without testing it? Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. I don't have any comment about that. <laughs> and the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and he said to his slave, now here's where the story gets interesting, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges, look under the bushes. And compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. He's talking about a greater mercy here. It's a mercy that is the heart of the Lord. And this little story is not just for the critics or the guests or the hosts. It's for everybody. It's for us. And involves a mercy that is greater than any mercy we have ever known. Look at that verse 15. That's what occasioned it. But he un unleashes this story that is almost foolish for me to comment on. It's so clear what we should do. Verse 23, And the master said to the slave, Go into the highways and along the hedges, compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. Are we? Do we? I'm not trying to guilt anybody out, but aren't we trying to find out what it is that pleases the Lord, and isn't this a clear answer? Step outside of ourself and don't worry about rewards. Table all of that for now and get involved in this lavish thing called God's mercy. Not too long ago, I heard the story of a young lady who was jilted. The day of her wedding was almost there. And at the last, the last day, the guy called it all off. He took a walk and he disappeared. In fact, he didn't show up. She was crushed. After a crying fit was over, she realized she had, she had all of this food. She had all this food and the wedding was the next day. What will I do? 
So she invited all of the homeless people she could think of to come to the hall. It was already paid for. She did make one little change in the menu. Instead of meat, instead of steak, she decided to go with the boneless chicken. She said that was in honor of the groom who didn't show up. And she invited all of these homeless people in and she showed up in her wedding dress. True story. I heard the other day of a a lady who worked in an emergency room, a big city emergency room, and she had worked there for over five years and she found that she had grown very insensitive to people. Even though she was helping every day, She had grown insensitive to their real needs. She said one day as she was registering a young woman who had overdosed on drugs and attempted suicide, the the young lady's mother was sitting in front of her and she was unkempt and she was bleary-eyed because she had been awakened in the middle of the night by the police to come to the hospital. Her daughter had overdosed on purpose. And this mother sitting in front of This emergency room worker who was calloused over, this mother could only speak in a whisper, she said. Inside the worker, as she's going through the paperwork, she's screaming in her head that the woman should hurry up. She didn't say that out loud, but she's saying, hurry up, hurry up. She's taking down the vitals. She said, I said to myself, as she slowly gave me the information, hurry up, hurry up, and her impatience grew. It was raw as she finished the report, and then she jumped to the machine to make a copy of the medical cards. And as she was standing at the copier, she said the Spirit of God spoke to her and stopped her by saying, you didn't even look at that lady. And she said at that moment, she felt grief for the woman that was sitting there and her daughter. And she bowed her head and she said, I'm sorry. God, I am sorry. I am so sorry. And she said she went back to that distraught woman and went around the other side of the counter now. And she covered up that lady's hands with her own hands and she looked into her eyes with all of the love that God could flood through her. And she said, I care, don't give up. And she wept as she poured out her story, that mother did. For years, you see, she had dealt with a rebellious daughter who was also a single mother. And finally, when the the weeping was all done, That lady thanked the worker for listening. The one who had been cold-hearted with no feelings, she thanked her. And that worker said her attitude changed that night because she realized that her God, who so loved the world, broke that self-imposed barrier around her own heart, and now he could reach out, and he was reaching out not only to the distraught lady, but she, he was reaching to the one who had been hardened. We have an opportunity to be involved in this lavish thing called God's mercy. And again, I'm not guilting anybody, but our goal is to find out what pleases the Lord, isn't it? And here's His answer. Here's what pleases me. If we step outside of ourselves and don't worry about reward, table it for now and get involved in this lavish, incredible thing called God's mercy. 
I want you to close your eyes and bow your heart and your head with mine. Johnny, if you'd put some music on. There's no question today, as I said, how can I improve or comment on what Jesus said in that last story? It's very clear what he calls us to do, to be merciful. Whatever that means in your situation, it may be for you, there's a coworker that is annoying and difficult and demanding and selfish, and the call for you is to be merciful. It may be that you know somebody who needs food. Be merciful. It may be that God is tugging at your heart saying, you know, you need to go with those fellows on Saturday night and pass out waters. When we passed them out last night, we were able to take some of the socks that you brought. And when we gave some of those people socks, it was like Christmas, Easter, and Fourth of July rolled into one. Socks? You brought me socks. Maybe God's saying you need to do that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe the way mercy will be expressed through your life is you'll finally work up enough nerve to go talk to that neighbor that doesn't know Christ or that coworker, or that family member and tell them, you know, for a long time I've been praying for you. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Please, let me tell you. Maybe that's how you'll express God's mercy. I want you to stand with me. And this is the question I'll ask. If you want to be involved in this lavish thing called the mercy of God, I want you to lift your hands, not one, but two, to the Lord. Because it'll be a sign of surrender. Lord, bathe me with your mercy. Don't let me worry about the rewards. Don't let me worry about self. Don't let me be preoccupied with self. But let me be occupied with your great mercy and how I might extend your mercy into the life of somebody that's broken and hurting. Father, I want to do that. Lift your hands if that's a description of your heart right now. Lord, I want to do that. Lord, we ask that you would allow us to do that. Father, I pray that in the next few days, in the next seven days that you give us, if you give us these days, Lord, that we will use them to seek out ways to show your mercy and we will find the ways that you have put in our lives. They're already there, Lord. You've already factored it in. Now just open our eyes and cause us to be sensitive to what you want us to see. And may we see every single life that crosses our path these next few days. May we see every person the way you, Jesus, see them. Lord, not the way we see them, but the way you see them. Give us the eyes and mind of Christ. Lord, that is our prayer so that we can have the mercy of Christ that will change lives forever. And as you're changing other lives, Lord, change ours because there's a lot of room for improvement there. So work your mercy in our lives this week. That is our great prayer, and we pray it in your name. We love you, Lord, and thank you. I want you to take the hand or put an arm around somebody next to you, and let's pray a blessing 
None of us knows what this week holds. And so let's pray God's best protection around each life that's near us today. Father, we do that right now. This life that we're in contact with, let it be open, let it be new, let it be good. Father, let it be filled with your presence and power. We ask, Father, that you would just put a hand of protection and a hedge around them that the enemy could not pierce. Lord, that you would lead and guide and fill them with joy and peace and let them know your mercy. Lord, let every day that they live be blessed by you. That is our prayer, Lord. That's our greatest and highest prayer. We pray it in the mighty, merciful name of Jesus, our Savior. And everybody said amen and amen. Hey, look at somebody and tell them you love them. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.